a 35-year-old chiropractor by the name of John Sarkin is playing golf one day when something weird happens inside his head. A blood vessel presses against his auditory nerve, causing severe and constant tinnitus. Tinnitus is phantom ringing in the ears generated by the brain. In 1989, Sarkin undergoes an operation to try to make the ringing go away. His doctor separated the nerve and capillary with a piece of Teflon. And uh, this unusual operation causes a massive stroke. Sarkin's doctors are forced to perform an emergency operation to save his life, which requires cutting a chunk from the left side of his brain. Sarkin wakes up weeks uh, later with his tinnitus gone, but also a piece of his brain gone. When Sarkin returns to his uh, chiropractic uh, practice, he finds a burning desire not there before the operation to sketch random pictures between patients and start doodling strange shapes, cacti, and odd faces. Sarkin experiences what's called sudden artistic output, which is so rare that doctors have only recorded three cases caused by brain injury. In 1993, he sells eight of his pictures to the New Yorker. He quits his business and opens an art studio. The New York Times and the, New uh, the Boston Globe starts ca start carrying his artwork. Tom Cruise's production company uh, purchases his story and a Pulitzer winning, a Pulitzer Prize winning author writes a book about him. And today his artwork sells for no less than $10,000 a piece. Not bad for w waking up with a slice of your brain missing and for having some form of transformation through brain injury. God wants to transform our minds without injuring our brains. The Bible says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. And God wants to begin with our minds because it is the epicenter of our existence. As Descartes once said, cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. Our basic thoughts and ideas about things and about God, specifically who He is and who we are, are the big ideas that govern how we conduct ourselves. If our most basic thoughts about God is that He doesn't exist, or if He does exist, He cannot be trusted, these ideas, these thoughts, will drastically realign our lives, change how we use our bodies, what kind of desires are formed, and what kind of actions are taken in fulfillment of those desires. Ideas, they do mean something. And ideas are formed in the mind. And the state of the unredeemed mind is that it is deeply distrustful of God. It thinks it knows better than God. It does what it wants and doesn't care about what God wants. As Dallas Willard puts it, in the ruined soul, the mind becomes a fearful wilderness 
and a wild intermixture of thought and feeling manifested in willful stupidities, blatant inconsistencies, and confusions, often to the point of obsession, madness, or possession. This condition of mind is what characterizes our world apart from God. Satan holds sway over it. This is the story that Romans 1 paints for us. A mind that thinks it is autonomous of God has turned the creation or the created order on its head. It is deeply uh, distrustful of God, thus putting the entire person at risk. You see, the mind is designed by God to take full control of the body and its desires and its actions. Like a series of concentric circles, the mind is the largest of these circles, followed by the body, followed by its desires and actions. And in another sense, it is like a natural cascading flow, like, like a water flow or a, water, a waterfall that flows from the headwaters which finds its origins in God. God is able to guide and strengthen the mind that deeply leans on Him and trusts in Him. But a mind poisoned by its own deep distrust of God produces thoughts that are contrary to God. New sinful desires or ideas generate its own sense of reality, compromising its ability to take, or the mind's ability to take control. Sinful, big ideas or thoughts begin to affect our bodies, our desires, and our actions. And finally, the mind, weakened by its own willful disregard of God, gets dethroned by its own sinful passions and desires. As God withdraws from the mind, the mind is left spinning deeper and deeper into the cellars of depravity. Its own wickedness becomes its new reality. Darkness becomes its new normal. And this frame of mind gets passed down from one generation to the next. And memories of God and His order and His normal recedes and is utterly forgotten. Sinful desires reign um, in the new person, taking it wherever it pleases. And the autonomous person, thinking itself uh, finally free, is in fact utterly defeated and enslaved. Imagine the concentric circles once again. Well, this time around, there's now a, 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 a big circle uh, that rules the rest, and this new big circle uh, is no longer, or is not God. It is not the mind that trusts and leans on God. The poisoned mind has been overthrown by its own passions, and sinful desires have risen to take full control of a person holding it captive to its own twisted reality. This twisted reality is what Paul describes as the mind of flesh. It is called the mind of flesh because everything it does is centered on the self rather than on God. It is called the mind of flesh because it is filled with thoughts and visions of self-grandeur and pleasure, of carnality and egotism. Attempts to get us out of this situation 
fail miserably as Romans 7 tells us. You see, sinful passion is very hard to dethrone and moralism or moralistic uh, religiosity will not do the job. It will not easily yield this passion because it finds its power from a poisoned mind. So long as the mind remains in the condition it is, it is in, passion is safe on its throne. What's needed is to regenerate and restore the mind to its former self as God had created it. Since the original problem is that the mind lost faith in God, then surely, we say the, the answer couldn't be that complicated. And in a sense, it isn't. Really, the answer is as simple as getting the mind to trust God completely, you know, once again. But the question is how and who is to carry it out? It is one thing to know what the answer is. It's another, another thing to make, uh, to make it happen. For now, the problem is far bigger than when it first began. The entire person is in need of redemption, not just the mind. What every person needs is a total regeneration and renewal, not just the mind. It's still, the mind is where it begins, so this is where we begin as well. How can the mind of flesh be made to trust God completely once again? How can it be made to give up its own sense of autonomy? How can sanity and strength and righteousness be restored back to the mind? One thing we know for sure is that the religious or moralistic path is definitely not the answer. Paul makes it perfectly clear to us in Romans 7 that moralistic efforts centered on the objectivization of God's good law is not the answer, it's a dead end. And moralistic obedience does not produce trust. Works do not produce faith. Only faith produces more faith. If the mind is to be totally regenerated and renewed, if it is to be handed back control of the entire person, if it is to find new strength and new resources for wise decisions, the mind needs to experience three things. Romans 6, 1 to 14 tells us what they are. The first two of these is that for the mind to be renewed, it must experience death and resurrection. This is the language we find in Romans 6, 3-4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The language of death and rising from the dead is the, anal is the only analogy sufficient to describe this process of the renewal of the mind. The death that we describe here is the complete end of an old way of thinking an old way of seeing, an old way of living. In normal 
human experience, we die to something when we make a complete break with the old for the new. It normally happens when the mind sees its own situation, sees something much better and is inspired to go after it and leave the old behind. And it can work in something as simple as our interests in life. Um, my son, for example, has caught a vision for basketball and marine biology. And my daughter has caught a vision for pastoral ministry, along with painting and drawing and all sorts of artistic stuff. And really, every vision caught means the end of something else. The death we're talking about here is really far more fundamental than the examples I just gave. And it, is, it isn't a physical death. It is, in fact, another kind of death, a spiritual kind of death. The death of a frame of mind. This kind of death is, uh, usually means that the mind lets go of the old as it latches on to the new. So it means not only death, but also resurrection from death. How does the spirit bring about the death and the resurrection of the mind, and by extension, the person? It does so by presenting to the mind something far better and far more real and true than what, is what the mind is currently living for, convincing it to break with the old to make room for the new. So we ask ourselves, is there anything in this world powerful enough, good enough, and true enough that could cause the mind to go in this direction? There is. It is none other than the love of God as exhibited in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ says in John 16, 13 and 14 in relation to the Spirit, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. It isn't doctrinal truth that's being talked about here. It is rather the truth about new, the new reality ushered in by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This reality is that God is so loving and so dependable that he has created the pathway back to reconciliation with himself. And it is not a moralistic path. It is a path paved by faith from the beginning to the end. It is a path that leads us to consider and accept the full reality that the cross and the empty tomb brings. This is the death and resurrection of Jesus. We have, or in this death and the resurrection of Jesus, we have the template for our own. Transformation. In other words, every person who wishes to reconcile with God must undergo spiritual death as well as spiritual resurrection. And faith in this reality generates lots of power. For a mind transformed and inspired and enabled by the Spirit can now take back control of the entire person. The body is once again honored. The desires are once again redeemed. And wise actions follow the directions of the redeemed mind, body, and desires. Now the old creation order of creation returns. The mind, once again, trusts God, leans on God. 
and now has the right frame of mind and all the tools in the Spirit's toolbox necessary to be empowered to live a resurrected kind of life. Romans 1, 16 and 17 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And the third thing that the mind must be impressed to do is this. The mind must completely identify with the resurrected Christ. Remember uh, in Romans, in Romans 6, 5-6, it says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. What does this all mean? Well, it means that to be united with Christ in his resurrection is to think, to consider the quality of Jesus' life now and his unending love and devotion to God now as if it were our own kind of life now. What Paul is telling us is that now that we have been un united in Jesus' death, we must also draw inspiration from Jesus' life now. This means that our mind, body, desires, and actions must exhibit the same quality of Jesus' own life now as a resurrected Christ. Paul isn't talking about the resurrection at the end of time here or at the second coming of Jesus. Paul is talking about our resurrection, as it were, from our watery grave, from our baptism. That is, that the new life signaled by our rising up out of baptism or the baptismal water ought to be just as dramatic and inspiring as our descent into the watery baptismal grave. Paul is saying that the spirit-framed mind, the mind that has died and has been resurrected to newness of life, now has a passion for a resurrected kind of life, patterned after the life that Jesus Christ lives today. And this passion is to live for God as unremittingly as the resurrected Christ lives for God unremittingly. And the mind will be able to guide the, the entire person to righteous living in so far as it is able to envision life as a union of life with Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul argues for a resurrected kind of life here and now. Romans 6, 7-11 says, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if he or we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, never will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. 
Now, Paul makes his point clear. He says that the Spirit inspires the renewed mind by way of reckoning, by way of thinking, of considering these things all the time. It might be helpful to note here that this is a command in the present imperative, which means that it is an ongoing thing. It is something we must all consider all the time. It is something that our minds must focus on all the time. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. Notice, consider, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is resurrected, um, that is resurrected and alive now. Now when Jesus comes, not when Jesus comes, comes again. And what follows in verse 12, on down to the end of Romans 6, is Paul telling us what the results of our identification with the resurrected Christ means. It means a life filled with righteousness um, uh, so that the mind now takes control of the body, refuses to let sinful desires back in the driver's seat. Our complete identification with the resurrected Christ is the secret to our, our, a, a life that is wise, a life that is righteous. It is the new frame of mind, not just for righteous thinking, but also for righteous living. As we think of Jesus now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, we are inspired to think and act like Him. We are inspired by His unremitting love uh, and loyalty to God. And we emulate Him. And while we may not always be successful this side of eternity, and we won't be, we don't give up. We know that moralistic perfectionism has no place in this new life. For when we walk in the Spirit, we may not always get it right, but we will not be browbeaten and condemned when we do. We don't have to look over our shoulders to see if God has changed His mind about us. We live secure in the knowledge that where the Spirit of Christ is, there is peace. There is righteousness. There is wisdom. As Roman, Romans 8 reminds us, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to let the mind on the flesh, or to set the mind on the flesh, is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. As I think about the transformation of our minds and and our entire selves, I think of two groups of individuals. 
There are those who have spent all their lives, or greater part of their lives, in autonomy from God. They have lived their lives in, in disregard of God. And when they do come to Christ, we hear about, these, uh, about them, because they often have a very dramatic conversion experience. There are times when God has to, I guess, shake people out of their own spiritual stupor and yank them out of their, you know, sad spiritual state of depravity. And I've read about people like that. I'm not going to cite any of them here. I think we know quite a few of them. We know enough about these, this, this kind. We, we have seen and read about them, as I said. But less known are those who do not have dramatic conversion experience. Uh, these are mostly the ones who are raised in a good Christian home, who have gone to Christian schools all their lives, who have known only God and, and Jesus Christ all their lives. I think about these people, and I, when I think about these people, I think about my own wife and my own children and those like them. And what of them? Well, they too, like all of us, need to have their minds regenerated and renewed by the Spirit. What do we say to those who were born inside the church? Well, simply this, that you too must give your mind to God, just like everyone else. You too must undergo spiritual death, spiritual resurrection, and spiritual identification with your resurrected Lord. And while your, your conversion may, may take the form of a long, quiet walk in the same direction, it is a conversion nonetheless, and it's no less real than the dramatic ones. And it is absolutely necessary. In fact, even more so in a way. Why? Because an autonomous mind raised in the knowledge of God inside the church, raised in the church, in a Christian home, is more subtle and often harder to spot and therefore harder to deal with. But this ought not be so. This ought not to be you. To you and to everyone else like you, I say this again. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will be able to test and approve the will of God, His good and pleasing and perfect will. And you can have the absolute confidence that as you walk in the Spirit, there in the, with the Spirit, there you will always have peace and you are never condemned. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for transforming our minds and for granting us the Holy Spirit to walk with us, to inspire us, to enable us to be better than we are, to help us to start assuming the mind of Christ, to keep transforming us from faith to faith. Lord, we thank you that now that we walk in, in, in newness of life, that we are not condemned, and that not condemned, we can freely live righteous lives looking on Jesus, 
the resurrected Jesus as our inspiration each moment of the day. Help us, O oh God, to persevere in this. In Jesus' name, amen.